be seated. If you're just joining us this morning, welcome. We are now in our second week of our observance of the season of Lent. And here, we're also, that means, in the second week of a sermon series from the book of Philippians, Paul's letter to the church in Philippi. And as we come into this second week of Lent, I find my mind already turning toward the very end of this season, probably because the staff and I are very busily preparing for the end of this season that culminates in our Holy Week celebrations together. And this week I found myself particularly thinking on our Good Friday observance, where after the the reading of the word and and a homily, I'll take down this cross and process it around the congregation as we sing ancient hymns that go all the way back to the fourth century of the church, uh, extolling and glorying in the cross. We glory in your cross, O Lord, and praise and glorify your holy resurrection, for by virtue of your cross, joy has come to the whole world. And again, we adore you, O Christ, and we bless you, for by your holy cross, you have redeemed the world. For centuries, the church has extolled, has has reveled in the work of Jesus upon the cross as the epicenter, as the epicenter of our salvation. And the centrality of the cross can be traced all the way back to St. Paul and actually even earlier in the history of the church. As we head into chapter 2 of Paul's letter to the Philippians, after setting the stage in what we heard last week with this sort of clarion call to the church to set the gospel, which is sort of his shorthand for the the declaration of Christ as the universal king of the whole world, of the universe, who laid aside his glory to come and to die upon a cross and be resurrected for the sake of the world. After he calls on the church to set that gospel first in their relationships, in their prayers, in their ambitions, and in their expectations. After that, here in these verses before us this morning, Paul, second, calls on the church to set and plant firmly the cross in the center of their lives. Their lives both individually and corporately. Set the cross at the center of your lives. And at the center of Paul's exhortation is actually another even more ancient Christian hymn extolling the cross. Paul will say in Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 5, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, And then he begins to quote what is presumably actually by most scholars a hymn that actually predates Paul himself. It says, Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. 
This section is so rich. In fact, if you look at the little sort of bookmark that we gave you last week that has all of the, the texts and, the, and the, the, the themes of the sermons that we're going to be looking at throughout this Lenten season, you'll notice we're actually going to look at this very text twice. That is not a misprint. That is not a typo. We are actually going to read it again next week. And I, uh, Father Nathan Warren will be with you all, and, and he will preach from this exact same text again next week. Because there is such a density, such a richness to unpack. But here's the second point that Paul wants to urge the Philippian church to take hold of. First, he called them last week to put the gospel first. Now he's calling on them to set the cross at the center. In the cross, the justice of God and the mercy of God. His love and his holiness his wrath against evil, and his tender compassion are all reconciled. That is the mystery of the universe. The gospel is the very story of how the eternal God of the universe, co-equal, co-eternal, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, came the second person of the Trinity in the person of Jesus Christ and became a human being in order to die And rise again to reconcile us to God. Interestingly enough, as as Paul quotes this hymn, the ESV follows, uh, which is the version that we read from publicly, English Standard Version, uh, but the ESV follows some other English translations in translating uh, this dependent clause as though he was in the form of God. But the Greek can uh, can actually be translated two different ways as this sort of although, which makes it what grammarians delight in calling a concessive clause, right? It's a concession. Although he was this, he chose to do this. But in the Greek, it can also be translated as what is known as a causal clause. The cause. Because he was in the form of God. I think the force of the argument in the hymn and Paul's use of it actually supports that second understanding, that second uh, causal clause translation. Because he was God, he didn't have to grasp. He didn't have to insist on his prerogatives. He didn't need to grasp at power and authority. He was free free to choose, and so he chose to lay aside his kingly crown. He chose to make himself nothing, to make himself nothing. He'll say uh, later, "No, no one's taking anything from me. I am laying it down willingly. He chose, in fact, to take on the very form of a servant, Now, I won't get into the complexities of the Greek there either. But suffice to say that when it says that he was found in the likeness of a human being, that is not saying that he merely appeared to be like a human. This is not like uh, stories from like uh, Greek or Norse mythology where the gods just kind of get curious about what's going on on earth, right? And so they decide to come down and, and, you know, take on a a disguise of a very good-looking young man, right? This is not what is going on here. 
Paul, by his very language of self-emptying, is affirming what the rest of the New Testament echoes, that Jesus Christ was very God of very God and fully and completely human. Furthermore, Paul wants us to grasp the truth that the cross was not merely a work of the Son to accomplish an end, the salvation of the world. It was that, but not merely that. The cross was also a work to establish the Son's model obedience. It was an end in itself. The church affirms he became obedient even unto death, even the death of a cross. And the church celebrates glories in the cross because through it we have something tangible to point to and say, look, church, this is what love looks like. Hear this world. This is what real love looks like. Not sentimentality, not good feelings, but that a man would lay down his life for his friends. But hear this also, church. This is what gospel obedience looks like. This is what gospel obedience looks like. When Jesus tells his disciples in Mark chapter 8, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his own cross, and follow me. He was saying the cross is what obedience looks like. I'm going to endure the shame and the scorn and the pain and the thorns for your sake. And in return, expect that at times you will be asked to endure hardship for my sake. And you will be expected to die to self in order to live to what God wants to do in you. And that's what the rest of this section is all about. Paul takes this hymn to the cross And he applies this model of obedience to the church. Setting up the hymn, he says this at the end of chapter 1 in verse 27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but for your salvation, that and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. Paul's application point in this section is this. Walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. Walk in a manner worthy of this great good news that you have received. The cross gives us a model. Follow it. Follow the model. It's not obedience to believe in your heart and mind that Jesus died for your sins. It's not even gospel obedience to stand up and declare you believe that in front of a group of you know, willing, happy believers who are going to clap for you when you're baptized and all of that good stuff. Obedience is born out in the fruit. Obedience is born out in the fruit 
that it produces. A life lived in a manner worthy of the gospel. In this section, Paul will unpack three specific ways that we should model our lives on the cross to walk in a manner of the gospel. Three specific ways. And the first of these is this. Don't be afraid of, surprised by, or try to squeeze out of suffering. Don't be surprised by, afraid of, or dodgy of suffering. Sharing in the fellowship of the gospel means sharing in the sufferings of Christ. Now, clearly, Paul was talking about physically suffering the literal and physical persecutions that accompanied allegiance to Jesus in the first century. He himself was awaiting trial and eventual imprisonment as a consequence of his ministry of preaching this gospel. The Philippian church was actually born when he was there persecuted for the sake of the gospel and put in prison. And he was miraculously delivered and the jailer who witnessed it, he and his whole family were baptized and this church was born. And so when he says, you yourselves have seen, that's what he's talking about. You already know what I'm talking about because I suffered when I was there. And so we're not surprised that I'm suffering now again here in Rome. He himself knew what it was to suffer. And Paul is passing on here that same idea of walking in a manner worthy of the gospel means sometimes embracing suffering for the gospel. Now, a quick word about bearing our cross in the contemporary Western world. When Jesus tells us to bear our cross, he does not mean putting up with that coworker or that boss that we don't like so much. He doesn't mean getting up and going to that same old job that is just such a grind and we're just tired of it. He doesn't even mean putting up with that overbearing mother who just will not get off your case. That is not bearing your cross. To bear our cross means to recognize that our faith costs us something. To bear the cross means to recognize that our faith costs us something. Because gospel obedience, real cross-centric obedience, does cost. Years ago, as educators and employers began identifying and bemoaning a wave of employees entering the job market who had only ever been told that everything they did was golden and who had apparently never been told no by any sort of authority figure in their lives, in the midst of that sort of newly breaking phenomena, I remember reading uh, an article. And it was actually an article in a Christian parenting magazine about the important discipline of saying no, particularly the important discipline of saying no to your children. In it, the author noted that what these employers and educators were just now learning is that it's actually not good for children to always be told yes and to be praised undeservedly. And so this author advocated a parental discipline of choosing to say no from time to time. Her argument was that sometimes, of course not always, but sometimes, even if what the child is asking for isn't bad or or harmful or whatever, it's actually good for them for you to say no. You know, so yes, I know we have ice cream in the freezer and I know you ate all of your supper, but no, we're not going to have dessert tonight. Well, similarly, 
in his book, Basics for Believers, a book on Philippians, uh, Dr. D.A. Carson uses the illustration of a bright young Christ follower who was raised in a believing home, who went to a thriving youth group in his town, went away to a Christian university, found a nice Christian girl to settle down with, raised three lovely children, and seemed to be a you know, spiritual pillar of his community until one day he walked out on that wife and three children. And everybody went, how can this be? I mean, he was such a spiritual leader. And Carson's analysis is that throughout childhood and young adulthood, he was always praised for his participation in things of faith, but it never pinched anywhere. It never cost him anything. It actually was, in fact, to his advantage in a lot of cases. So the first time he faced a really difficult temptation, he fell because his faith had never said no to him because he had never learned how to stand up for his beliefs and his morals in the face of opposition. Brothers and sisters, this is why we as American followers of Jesus need a season like Lent. We need to tell ourselves no sometimes. Because by saying no to self, we are saying our faith does cost us something. Lent urges us on, embrace the costliness of your faith. Deliberately choose to say no to the avoidance and the numbing and the self-soothing, self-medicating that is part and parcel of our world. And today is, of course, St. Patrick's Day, the day when everyone's Irish, right? St. Patrick's Day, honoring and celebrating the apostle to the Irish, the British apostle to the Irish, I always like to point out. Anyway, way back in the 3rd and 4th centuries of the common era, the gospel swept like wildfire through the northern British Isles and became what we today look back on and call the Celtic Church. And here is the remarkable thing. Unlike all the other places, basically, where the gospel had gone up until that point, the Celtic peoples embraced the gospel wholeheartedly welcomed it, and not a drop of blood was shed in contesting for and presenting the gospel in those places. Now, the first Celtic monks and nuns, they felt somehow cheated by that fact. You know, they had read and took Jesus seriously in the gospels when he said, rejoice when you're persecuted. Like, well, we just got cheated out of being able to rejoice because we're not being persecuted. They took Paul seriously when he said, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters. So, with no opportunities for persecution and martyrdom, they launched what they called a white martyrdom, or a bloodless martyrdom. And they truly considered themselves dead to the world and alive to Christ as martyrs for their faith. They took on all sorts of prayer and and fasting disciplines. They gave their lives over to pilgrimage, to travel and spread the love and good news of Jesus. Some set out in sailless, rudderless boats called coracles to just be carried by the tides and the winds wherever the tide and wind and the will of God would take them so that they could share the gospel and the love of Christ with whomever they found there. Brothers and sisters, I truly believe that it is time for the church in the West to rediscover 
white martyrdom. To rediscover the bloodness, bloodless martyrdom. Choosing to say no. Choosing to die to our own interests for the sake of Christ and his gospel. And this is the opportunity that Lent provides for us on a, on a small scale at least. As a, as a first step to engage this same kind of white martyrdom. To engage with our faith in a way that actually costs us something. To say no to self in order to say yes to God. There's a second application of the cross that Paul points to in these verses as well. He says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, verse 27, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Putting the cross at the center means that it is the cross which is the central rallying point of the church. When we as a church are the best versions of ourselves, it is because our focus is singular and clear upon the cross of Jesus Christ. When our eye turns to one side or the other, we begin to focus on what this or that brother or sister is or isn't doing or the way they let me down or the way, you know, whatever. Or what meeting or program is or isn't happening. That's when we move from this cross-centric point and we begin to lose our common purpose. But what St. Paul calls us to as believers is to keep our focus on the cross And then to model our posture and our attitudes on what we see there. Dying to our own preferences, to our own agendas, our own desires. Not trying to position ourselves to be admired as the the super believer that has it all together, right? Not looking down our noses at others whose faith is not as far along as battle-tested or as intellectually nuanced as ours. Cross-centered community puts Jesus in the center and everyone else in the front of the line. Puts Jesus at the center and everyone else in front of us in line. And that's, in fact, the third and final application of this point. St. Paul goes on with the same thought in in verse 1 of chapter 2. So, If there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Put others first. Dying to self means we don't walk into community seeking to press our own agenda. It means we look for what God is already doing in our community and we seek to join him in it. It means we come to church not to get to coffee hour because we can't wait to tell so-and-so about you'll never believe what happened to me this week. But rather we try to get to coffee hour in order to say, how are you this week? What's been going on in your life? What were your joys? What were your struggles this week? 
It means we don't come to church and ask primarily, is this still meeting my needs? We ask, how can God use me to meet the needs of others? It means we look at our interactions and we assume the best in others, assume that they are trying as hard as they can. It's another lesson that I've learned from uh, Brene Brown. She talks about the, the impact this has had in leadership circles from the, uh, from the Pentagon to West Point to Fortune 500 companies, going in and telling managers, just assume that everybody you work with is doing their best. And she says, they push back immediately. No, they're not. They can't be. Well, just do it as a thought experiment then. Try to imagine that everybody around you is actually doing their best. And then what do you need to do in response? Think about the way that simple shift in thinking about your brothers and sisters might shift your own thoughts and attitudes. Man, he really let me down. But you know, I know he's doing the best he can with what he's got. And so I will extend grace. Even if it's, I will extend grace yet again. She can be just so immature, so unformed in her attitude. But she's doing the best she can with what she's got. I can pray for her. Now, that is all only possible. This is not where Brene Brown goes. But this is all only possible because of the cross. But when we put the cross at the center, like Jesus, we can be confident in who we are because of what he has done. And that makes us free to lay aside our need to be right or our need to control or our need to have our needs filled. It can free us to lay aside our needs and preferences. Frees us from having to grasp at significance and be truly present and able to give to those around us. Cross-centered community puts Jesus at the center and everyone else in front of us in the line. That's what it means to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. That's what it means to live, brothers and sisters, with the cross at the center. Put the gospel first. Plant the cross at the center. Let's pray for the grace to do that. Gracious Lord, truly it is only by your cross. Because by your cross you have redeemed us. Because through your cross, joy has come to us and the whole world. Because of that, we can follow you taking up our crosses daily. But Lord, I will, I will freely acknowledge that is hard work. It's not something we can simply will ourselves to do. So Lord, we need the grace of your spirit. So I pray once again, come upon your people, Lord. Give us the grace of your cross to live in the obedience of your cross as we walk through this world together. 
So, Lord, it is to you that we commend ourselves to having begun this work, bring it to completion. Lord, our God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.